Hello everyone and welcome to another issue of Canaan Rinse. In this issue, 463, we will be covering Dishonored 2. Joining me, Joshua Garrity, in this issue is Brian Edwards. Hello, hello. James Carter. Hello. And Thomas Quilfelt. Hey there. Um, as I said, we are covering Dishonored 2. Uh, it is worth noting that we covered uh, Dishonored, the original, in issue 88, which was eight years ago, which <laughs> was quite a shock for me to discover when writing up the notes for this. Um, so what is Dishonored 2? It's the second game in a Thief and Deus Ex-inspired freeform immersive sim series that draws heavily from the 19th slash 20th century and combines it with anachronistic technology, dark magic, and Shakespearean drama. Um, the developer, um, the primary developer on on this uh, this Dishonored title is Arcane Studios Leon. Um, both Arcane uh, Leon and Arcane Austin worked very collaboratively on the first Dishonored, and it, that's not to say that um, Austin had nothing to do with Dishonored Two. They helped a lot with playtesting and and offering feedback on Dishonored Two. But this was much more uh, a Leon joint, as Austin were working on Prey um, around the same time. Um, the publisher, of course, was Bethesda uh, Soft uh, Softworks. Um, creative director who uh, co-directed the original Dishonored um, is Harvey Smith. Um, so this game is no longer in the Unreal Engine. Um, this is using the Void Engine, which is Arcane's own in-house engine. Uh, and it was released in November 2016 on PC, PS4 and Xbox One. Um, I think it's fair to say that the reviews for the game were fairly positive. It sits at an average of 86% on Open Critic. Um, and the user reviews are pretty much on, you know, in the same ballpark um, as the critics. So IMDB has an average of 8.4 out of 10 from uh, consumers. Right, let's dive into our histories. Uh, James, you were on... The uh, the issue on the original Dishonored, were you not? I was, yeah. Yeah, absolutely was. Um, yeah, this was a game that was marketed as immersive sim, but heavy on stealth. So naturally, I was interested. And, uh, and I can certainly remember it was myself. Uh, Leon J was on there. I can't remember who else was. It's me it's as well. You as well, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I remember, I haven't been back to listen to it, but I remember being a little bit, lukewarm on the game there was stuff about it i really liked but there was stuff that kind of missed the mark particularly around not the world building but the story side of stuff didn't yeah. hit for me it felt like corvo's story just wasn't quite what i was after so hearing that emily was going to be a playable character that uh you know they were 
looking to build out the world and and expand the world and kind of build on that stuff they'd put down left me uh, quite hopeful for this. But as mentioned, Dishonored was not a game that on its name alone was going to get me interested in a sequel. So I didn't actually play this until about a year after release in the run-up to, in preparation for Death of the Outsider. So I actually... um, I played the original Dishonored in 2012, the year of release. I then replayed it in 2017, in September. Played Dishonored 2 in October um, of 2017, and then straight into Death of the Outsider uh, around the same time, because that had just come out. So uh, I hadn't been back to it since then, so it's now three and a half years. Um, but replayed a New Game Plus playthrough um, on... Now on Xbox Series X, but originally was Xbox One. Uh, would have been X at that point, 2017, or I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, re- replayed it a couple of weeks back now, sort of end of March. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's where I'm I'm at with it. So it uh, came from a kind of... I'd warmed to Dishonored over the years, it's fair to say, uh, and ended up... Uh, getting to this a little bit after its release yeah so i was also on that issue and i was also really really negative and uh this is an interesting one because it was the recording was eight years ago and a lot changed in eight years i i listen to that podcast now and uh i i there are things that i still agree with like the the criticisms of the plot i i think are still I I still think um, I hold, Mm. right? Um, But I feel like I was trying to force Dishonored into a mold that it was never meant to be in. Mm. Um, Part of it was that I... Like, 2012, I also played Mark of the Ninja, and I was kind of unfairly uh, comparing Dishonored stealth to Mark of the Ninja all the way through. And I think when I revisited the game quite a few years later... Um, I kind of approached it as not a stealth game, but a opportunist game. Yeah. Uh, and then I ended up having so much more fun mm. and g- gained a renewed appreciation of the game um, that I just didn't feel um, way back when. Um, so Dishonored 2 ended up being kind of an anticipated title. Um, I really like what they were showing off with Emily. Um, I liked the specifically Emily's power set was really appealing to me because it played into the kind of uh, best of both worlds kind of mentality that ended up leading to me really liking the first Mm. game of like powers that could apply to both stealth and kind of active combat. Um, So yeah, I didn't get this day one and I can't remember the reasons why, but I did end up picking it up like a couple of months later, because Bethesda games, I don't think it happens much now, but at least back in 2016, there was this trend of Bethesda games going to 25 quid, like two months later. Um, So I think that's when I picked it up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've played it through once as Emily, uh, halfway through as Corvo, and then all the way through again recently as Emily again. Um, but taking advantage of the kind of new game plus freedoms that we'll we'll talk about later on. 
So that's my history. Brian, what about you? Yeah, I kind of um, came to Dishonored, uh, the original Dishonored, a little bit later um, and played through that. Um, enjoyed my time with it. I felt, um, I don't want to say, uh, I didn't have a negative feeling toward the game when I got done with it, but I felt like the game didn't express to me what it wanted me to do. So I played that game very aggressively. And then I was on the boat ride to that final island, and they were like, you are a terrible person. I'm like, oh, what did I do? I thought I was just doing the thing. Um, But anyway, um, so by the end of that game, I kind of had a feeling for more of what they were looking for me to do. And and Dishonored 2 was a game that I anticipated. It was a game that I got pretty close to launch. Um, I got it, I guess it was probably in this first round of discounts. I think I got it uh, maybe 10% off, maybe a little bit more. Um, and it just kind of sat on my Xbox, um, hard drive for maybe three or four months. I'm not sure why I didn't get to it. Um, so I probably ended up playing it well into 2017, um, probably in the spring there. And then once I started it, I just kind of, I just kind of motored the whole way through. Couldn't really think of anything else to play. Um, I played through as Emily. Um, and then, uh, recently in the lead up to the show, I've been playing through as Corvo. I've gotten, I want to say three quarters of the way through the game. I didn't get through it all the way again as Corvo. Um, but yeah, um, so I was pretty close to launch day adopter and then, um, and then, uh, coming back to it now in preparation for the show. So I, um, let me think, I really liked Dishonored, uh, one on PS3 and I picked up the, uh, finally got through the DLC on the PS4 collection, I think. Um, I don't know why I didn't play it earlier, really kind of enjoyed the whole thing. And I, I, I thought about Dishonored one as a first draft that I enjoyed, um, and I, you know, play very slowly, anxiously, hoovering everything up and, and looking up stuff I might have missed and all of that. And then um, in 2016, I had the good fortune to be able to catch a, I think it was a BAFTA talk with the art leads on Dishonored 2 mm. and was just so impressed. They talked about a, a single piece of concept art for like 15 minutes Uh, uh like going through every single aspect of like the cultures they'd drawn from, the art styles, the fashion, literally one image of, I think, some Karnaka guards um, uh, um, escorting the Duke's uh, um, uh, carriage. And so that really impressed me, that kind of dedication to detail and the high art approach they were bringing into it. And I also got a to jump the queue for a demo um, of the Clockwork Mansion at EGX, which was very exciting and very cool to use the new powers and zip around that mansion. So I, I sort of knew I'd seen the best level of the game before, just before launch. Um, I was quite hyped for it. And then I just didn't, just didn't buy it, just didn't play it, didn't think about it me and potentially quite a few other people and uh eventually i it was on a i think a birthday list someone got it it with the typical bethesda discount and then again i just i owned it it sat on my shelf for over, well over a year and then finally in 2019 i was just like well i i think i should probably play this it's been long enough now i and i don't know why i didn't play it sooner um but I think I was partly intimidated by the amount of dedication that I personally would have to would want to bring to it and knowing how dense the levels are and mm. vertical they are and stuff that I wanted to really give it kind of mind space. And I'd had children all, over these years, 2016 onwards. So my brain was in pieces on the floor. Uh, so I beat it as Emily doing a low chaos and then um, to, to bone up for the uh, podcast i did a max violence new game plus corvo played about half the game and just absolutely 
smashed everything in sight and that was quite it was too easy of course because you're just massively overpowered but yeah. super fun and, and quite satisfying in, in a different way um i am going to issue a spoiler warning before we dive into the reads um uh, i mean the the story for this game is relatively simple when you lay it out yeah. but um there are a few kind of details and nuances that can be spoiled so uh this is your warning so um on the scenario and story and all that jazz um i'm just going to lay out the actual plot when it comes to the details and the kind of inter- you know interesting layers that the world has we can talk about those as as we come to them but the actual plot in the game is relatively simple so it's 15 years after the the first dishonored emily is empress a mysterious crown killer is uh, traveling around the kingdom and taking out um, Emily's rivals or, you know, uh, people that could potentially be an issue for Emily. Um, and you start the game on the anniversary of um, Jessamina Coldwind's passing. Uh, Luca Abel surprises you um, and uh, helps uh, Delilah Copperspoon, who was a villain uh, in the previous uh, Dishonored DLCs, uh, helps her lead a coup against Emily. Uh, You're then given a choice between Emily and Corvo, um, and uh, whoever you don't pick as your protagonist ends up encased in stone for the rest of the game. Uh, and then you go through a Kill Bill-style uh, checklist um, when you visit Karnaka, uh, a capital city um, of the Isle of Sokonus, where most of the participants of the the coup reside, and check them off that list um, while also gathering information on how to take out Delilah herself. Um, that's effectively like the chess piece you know storytelling version of the plot i'm gonna i'm gonna start off start us off and and just say and i know thomas you have some feelings about this as well (laughs) i feel like the game in terms of storytelling at least starts off on such a weirdly mediocre note did anyone else feel that way as well i I do, and I think yeah. part of it is that it just seemed like, I mean, obviously, you're pl- I'm playing a video game that's designed for me. It is literally contrived, but yeah. it still seemed a bit contrived. You know, it's like yeah. I- I'm sitting in the throne. I played as Emily, so Emily's sitting in the throne, and then this, and then Delilah literally walks up the red carpet, takes out everybody around you, and you go just from being the most powerful person in the kingdom to then just the empress to just nothing in a matter of moments. And, and I don't know. It just felt... Like just kind of, like could just kind of see it coming. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. It just, it was underwhelming. And I remember uh, there's a, a period shortly after, as you're in that first chapter, as you're, I'm kind of sneaking down the alleyway, and these and these guards that were, that were previously my guards are now just out to kill me immediately. Yeah. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, this isn't how. Like nobody would just unquestion it, <laughs> like just like you know, be like, oh, okay, well, she's in the chair now, so she, yep, she's ruling things. Like I don't know, it just felt a little bit contrived. And the, it, once you kind of get moving past that initial chapter, I think it it really picks up in, in a in a in a good in a good way, both narratively and in um and in gameplay. But yeah. but that first chapter was a bit of I remember having the conversation with myself, like, am I 
is this is this what I want to do? Like, it, like it kind of <laughs> it put me off a little bit right yeah. from the beginning. I think it, I, I think yeah, they've got a couple of problems in this mm-hmm. opening bit and the first level. It it feels awkward and inelegant compared to some of the you know high highs of the set pieces later on and the level design and all of that to start in such a way. I can forgive an awkward setup for a game that's about powers and level design and kind of beautiful art design. So where the story is not necessarily the key focus, I can kind yeah. of forgive the artifice of it. Um, the My problem was actually that I was saying on Slack was just that the voice acting is is strangely inconsistent and and very odd and flat uh, flat in some places and then you know exquisitely kind of um high drama in other places and um vincent d'onofrio he he doesn't phone it in so much as like throws the phone at the wall whereas rosario (laughs) dawson is 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 going as flat as as humanly possible so it's very strange um and and to to spend the first level without your powers, okay, it's a it's a good kind of verticality tutorial, but it is quite disappointing. If you're coming from the first game, especially, it's quite a disappointing first yeah. level for me. And so, so by the time you actually start getting powers and stuff, you've been playing for potentially two two hours or something. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. a bit of an uphill struggle, isn't it, to to, to even get to the the fun of and- the game. And especially if you're trying to play a pacifist playthrough, like only killing your targets or eliminating your targets, because that means that first section without your powers, I think it's basically a really nice looking version of uh, Link sneaking in through the back of, uh, you know, Hyrule Castle and Ocarina (laughs) of Time. You know, you're you're basically just hiding behind the bushes for the one guy to pass and you go and you go. And it's it's obviously a more elegant and more sophisticated than that. But but it doesn't kind of take. It still feels like that. It's just kind of just waiting. And if you get seen, it's like, oh, well, I just got to run or, or reload or, or whatever. Yeah, it just, yeah, like you said, yeah. it's, it does feel a bit ham-fisted, especially compared to where it gets to. And I know mm. we'll get to that later. I think, um, yeah. like, story-wise, there are some problems I have with this as well. Not just in terms of it seems very artificial to be given an obvious choice in who you're playing, and then it just happens that the other person's the one getting encased in stone okay, that's character choice and you need to have a reason that if you're Emily, Corvo's out of the picture, etc. But also, very quickly thereafter, you start picking up newspapers or hearing things about, even just in that first level, about the crown killer. We've gone from Emily just apparently perfectly running this empire with seemingly very few problems to every single person apart from, I think, one other than Corvo, was actually against her all along, seemingly. Um, yeah. And the crown killer is out there, and, and suddenly there's this whole thing about a person who seems to be taking out people, and some people think it is Emily or it is Corvo, and it's just, I felt like that that works well if we're to believe that Emily really didn't have a, an idea of what was going on around her. She didn't pay enough attention, which when we get to Karnaka she starts saying, she starts saying, I wasn't paying enough attention to this, which works when it's a distant land that you're relying on other people to be Duke of and to look after and you have only second or third hand information coming to you. But when it's your own people literally in the building, that it kind of says, okay, Emily really wasn't doing a great job. And also we lose out on what should have been the tension she felt as every morning she opened the newspaper to see a crown killer incident again and the growing 
suspicion that someone in her house is doing this stuff. Th- that's yeah. that's something that we should have known that Emily was feeling, and we didn't, because it all just gets sort of thrown on top of you within the first mm. ten minutes of a game where you're playing catch up to try and get up to speed on what's going on, and it felt like that wasn't an ideal way to present something as disturbing as the notion of a crown killer and someone essentially trying yeah. to frame Emily in order to seed this kind of discontent with her that she is otherwise apparently oblivious to. That, that It seemed very... There was a, a discord between those two things in my mind through this first level especially. Yeah. This feeling never really... Like, it's most intense in the opening hours mm. of this game, but this feeling never never really went away for me in Dishonored 2 yeah. is that there's so much richness and like there's some great uh narrative building blocks here yeah. Yeah. like f- like throughout Karnaka there's like these amazing details and and like when you actually piece the stuff that they're doing with the plot when when like the kind of details of what Delilah is doing and you know who the crown you know crown killer is and all of that stuff comes into place later on in the game you're like you know what that's actually pretty cool but it was delivered in such an awkward way yeah. and i don't think this ever really goes away like it feels like um like the, the difference between somebody who's really good at writing lore and somebody who's really good at writing plot and character yeah. like there's a real disparity uh yeah dis- there's a a real disparity between those two things within not just this game but a lot of um a lot of arcane's yeah. um titles yeah. um and like there there's a more and I can't help but look I hate to be like backseat developer but like I can already see like more elegant ways of doing the same plot like you could have just started with emily already on the run and then like you're piecing together like through flashback or just details you pick up in the world or conversations about what happened in that throne room and why it's happening or like like uh, the thing is like i think they want to kind of aspire to this kind of cinematic kind of style of storytelling but it just doesn't suit video games because in a movie you'd spend the first 40 minutes just establishing all of this stuff yeah. before anything kicks off and you yeah. can't do that in a video game yeah. so well, you can do that they, in a video game but you've got to do one or the other i think yeah i think you're yeah, right you're yeah. either either take more time to establish it and make us care or just chop yeah. the whole thing off and start a karnaka and then Tell us the important stuff as we go along, and just you know catch yeah, yeah, us up yeah, instead of. Yeah. But, but it, it is awkward. It's an awkward setup, and it's a yeah. and it's a first level that, whilst it's still got some great level design in the level, but without mm-hmm. your powers, it feels like a chore. So uh, I, I, we're going to dive into the kind of uh, mechanics and kind of verb set of the game in a bit, but I just want to start us off with um, uh, this post from John Cheatman. Uh, Cheatman. Um, who is going to, I'm going to uh, feature his post throughout the recording just because I thought it was really well written and I've peppered it um, throughout. So uh, uh, this won't be the last we hear of John. Um, I, I find the power set here the most fun in the series as you've got everything from the original plus so much more. Using Domino to link the fates of a group of hapless guards never gets old. 
particularly when combined with Far Reach, to basically vacuum one of them onto your sword. <laughs> that said, the range of gadgets is excellent too, as is the non-lethal verbiage on offer. Doing a run that was both non-lethal and non-stealthy basically meant I turned into Batman, running in, throwing out gadgets mid-fight, kneecapping guards with the crossbow, and then spinning them round to knock them out bef before tidily piling everyone in a corner <laughs> to sleep it off. Huh? Yeah, I, I, I feel much the same as John. I think the verb set in this game is kind of incredible. Like, is is there anyone who wants to just jump in immediately? The 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 domino power is brilliant, and, yeah. and I didn't I didn't quite. I'm just such a nervous player of these games. Like, I'm really like save reload, save reload. You know, just try and I'm so awkward about it. And then for some reason, on my second playthrough, I'm always much freer. And I, I feel like something's been, you know, unlocked inside myself, uh, especially on a lethal playthrough where you don't really care about the consequences of getting seen or whatever. And suddenly I'm doing all these tricks I've seen, like chaining Domino and then um, including a doppelganger in that and then choking out the do doppelganger. And you can choke everyone without even having to go anywhere near any of the other guards. And it's just all sorts of combinations like that. Yeah. They're so brilliant. Um, but you have to you have to allow yourself to feel the fun and i think there's a there's a, there's a temptation potentially for anxious types like me to kind of be too precious with your manner and to um just not inventive not not be creative and because you can always reload you know yeah i i found some of the most fun that i've had in any of these immersive any of these kind of stealth based games uh to come from designer 2 um the shadow walk power that emily has is just yeah. some of the most like like by the time you really ruin that up and get to the point where you can, you're basically moving around as a mist, a black mist close to the floor, but you can get to the point where you can take out three enemies while in mist form, and you can kind of lure other enemies into you once they see other guys kind of dropping. Ah, uh, it just like it's just fun, and and there's ways to combine these powers. Um, it, it feels like a really cohesive set. That in a lot of games where it feels like you're kind of you kind of spec in one direction, right? You're gonna oh, this is gonna be the area I'm focusing on, or I'm gonna focus on attack or or stealth or or whatever. When this game, it really does kind of feel like kind of out of the gate, like you can take any course of action you want, and you're gonna find a nice fun tool set at your disposal to just either murder or knock out people all the way through a, a particular level. So I, I primarily. Um... Uh, focused in on Far Reach and Domino mm. in my uh, upgrade paths, and the thing with like Far Reach um, in its default state kind of operates as a slightly weaker version of Blink. Um, mm. In that, like you don't just teleport, right? You actually travel to the location. But as you upgrade it, its utility is uh, it, it's applicable in much more uh, varied situations than Blink is. Blink is like like for me is like a pure like traversal ability, whereas Far Reach you can start grabbing objects, you can start grabbing people, <laughs> and when you combine that with Domino, 
where you've upgraded Domino to the point where you can link up four people, there's a lot of people being chucked off of roofs. <laughs> there's a lot of people being chucked into um, the the light barriers. Um, there's all sorts of juggling going on of dogs and guards. And uh, the only enemy that isn't affected by this is witches, unfortunately, who just uh, yeah. are able to teleport out of the way. But pretty much every other enemy just like yep you're going off the roof all four all four all four of you are going if anyone's if anyone's suffering from imagination check out the 80 ways to kill is it kieran jindosh video because it's just you know so much imagination it's brilliant hilarious it's just incredible and (laughs) like i think that that that's the thing um Especially with Emily's power set, um, we'll talk more about Corvo because Corvo's power set is essentially the same as um, as Dishonored One, um, with a few tweaks here and there. Um, but what I loved about Emily's power set was how much like, um, and and Brian, you you kind of hinted at this earlier, like how much they intersect with each other. Like all of these abilities, like mesmerize, works really well with Domino as mm-hmm. well. Double doppelganger works really well with Domino, especially as like a stealth tactic yeah. of just like Domino, Domino, Domino. Uh, get a doppelganger in front of me, Domino the doppelganger, kill the doppelganger, everyone's dead. Like uh, <laughs> there's just like so many possibilities with the this ability set, and uh, it's just incredible. I think uh, still my favorite though is stopped is stop time. Actually, that's what I found with yeah. this Corvo playthrough. There's just nothing quite like it for just pure murderous fun. You know, you just (laughs) stop time and you feel safe and powerful. And you're just like, should I get a grenade? Should I get a crossbow out? I'm going to stab this guy, stab that guy. I killed like 15 witches and eight dogs in (laughs) in a minute and a half. And it was awesome. And it's just so, so much fun if you're doing a playthrough where you can, you know, express yourself. And I think that's the issue that i have and it's the same issue i had with dishonored it's in the game i know that it's in the game because it's also in the achievement lists they wanted to make these games possible without powers and also without killing anyone and without being seen by anyone and if you play for that which is always going to be my default way to approach a stealth game it just is, whether it's Metal Gear, whether it's Splinter Cell, whether it's Hitman, whether it's this, any kind of stealth game, I'm going to assume that the if it's a viable option to not kill anyone and not be seen, that's what I'm going to try and do, and maybe what even the developers want me to try and do, because so often there's an achievement for doing that, and there isn't one for killing everybody in the game. So that says something to me. And never before in any other game than Dishonored and Dishonored 2 have I felt like I'm missing out on so much of the game by doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you miss out on all bar about two of the powers because honestly Domino is useless if you want not to be seen at all because you can't allow any bodies to be seen which means unless you can be sure that everyone you're about to drop unconscious is everyone then those bodies get seen, so you're far better off just avoiding people altogether and finding a route around, which means you're not going to heavily populated areas, which means like half or more of the levels you are just not going to see because you want to take the quickest and least populated route to get to your target and you want to find out whatever the option is to not have to kill them. 
which means you're heading to whatever the marker on the waypoint on your map is. It just feels like you're missing out on so much. So my second playthrough, where I just said to myself, right, bite the bullet on this one, put up with the fact that you're just going to start killing everyone. It's going to be a high chaos playthrough. Um, you're going to be told at every cutscene and in some of the conversations <laughs> that you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. This time around, there's no rats that are suddenly more numerous. So kind of, who cares? Um it does just blood feel. Flies. I think there's more blood flies. In, it ba- in barely more matters because you just run up to the nests and swipe at them, and, and there's them, never yeah. people. Well, other than the the kind of blood fly zombies, there's not really people around when there's blood flies around. So, yeah, it's it's just weird that I don't feel it in a Metal Gear game where I'm not using a load of the weapons because they give you enough stuff to do that's non-lethal, and you feel so. I want to say powerful, but what I actually mean is smug for having got round all these people and they have no idea you were ever there. That's actually <laughs> right. what you feel. Whereas in Dishonored, it feels like, well, obviously they had no idea because I was about 300 yards away from all of them at all times. <laughs> like, rarely am I putting myself in a position where I'm... Is a, the Clockwork Mansion is a fairly good expression of that, isn't yeah. it? As a, as a microcosm of, like, the idea that Jindosh is this kind of Joker-like guy who sees your every move and is just constantly in your ears, really annoying you, so you yeah. really want to just smash his face in. Or you can avoid any room. You can just basically get through the whole level without him ever knowing you were ever there. Yeah. Um, and that variety uh, um, is is just brilliant because you could you could do it either way and then miss a load of content and i think if you're interested in finding the different ways of expressing the 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 play in this in this game there's just so much riches and detail and and options to go through and that in itself the fact that those multiple paths um exist pleases me and makes me feel more rewarded for whatever i pick the first time and feel more creative for whatever i pick the second time yeah, and I feel like the game does kind of encourage you. I mean, despite what you were saying about the achievements and having the achievement for not killing anybody mm-hmm. and for uh, you know never being spotted and, and not using powers and those things, like the game is actively encouraging you at multiple times to combine playstyles. Like, um, like there's some people that you see that you know, what they're doing, like guards or, or or especially like like you were talking about Tom with um with uh, Jindosh there, uh, like where you just like, you get to the end of a level and like you, you want to body this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to just put to sleep. I don't want to, I, I want this, I want him pushing up daisies and like, and, and they do a good job at building that tension, but, and, and the chaos meter also works well to that too, because it, it, it allows you to kind of take some darker steps from time to time, but without going full rogue, you know? And yeah. so it does feel like the game is encouraging you to, Hey, kind of you, Use your discretion here, but you know, you could you don't have to go full tilt one or the other. But then to have those achievements and those styles that kind of encourage you to go that way too, it, it does kind of feel a little bit at war with itself there. Yeah, I I feel like with you know James, you've brought up Metal mm-hmm. Gear, and and I would bring up Hitman yeah. here. Like Hitman, um, the reason why I feel like that kind of very pacifist kind of silent assassin kind of approach is incredibly fun in that game um whereas like your feeling is that you're missing mm. out um here is a hitman does is designed so there's literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of opportunities 
if you adopt that kind of silent assassin approach. Whereas with Dishonored, there is also hundreds and hundreds of opportunities, but it's hundreds and hundreds of opportunities where you're playing entirely different genres of game yeah. depending on the the approach you take like you could there's like a version of this where you could just march through the game like a first person shooter and just take everyone out and i feel like that's more true of dishonored 2 than it was of um of uh, dishonored 1 like i think you can upgrade your character and your sword fighting and your your pistol to a degree yeah. where you can just go go full um full berserker if you really want to sure, yeah. um and like when you're you're taking that kind of silent assassin approach there are there is more than one right i don't want to discredit dishonored 2 there is more than one way and more than mm-hmm. one path but it's way more limited when compared to a hitman yeah. or a, and, and or I a mean, metal th- gear there is except if you're doing the kind of um ghost path it also kind of makes yeah. sense to be doing, and I appreciate what Brian said, but it also kind of makes sense to do the non-lethal, and there is one non-lethal yeah. option. You either get yeah. there and kill them in any way you want, or you go and do the right, thing yeah. that is the kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, to send right. them off yep. on a boat or whatever it is, to get them out of the way, to swap um, Luca Bell for his body double, that kind of thing. There's There's mm, always yeah. one way out. Which means essentially you're kind of very limited if you're doing that. And that's a good point. To, to, yeah, I didn't think to, about it like that. Um, yeah. To your point, Brian, to say yes, Jindosh, obviously horrible guy. You get there and kind of the, especially if he's been taunting you all the way through the level, <laughs> you absolutely feel justified in just dodging his two uh, robots, hopping down and you know slitting his throat or whatever. But also, if you're using the heart to listen to what people or or what it says about people. There's very few people in this game that you can't feel justified in thinking the world might be better off without them. If that's your point <laughs> right, of view, right? Which... But that doesn't affect your chaos. If you if you kill someone, the heart says is bad. It doesn't affect your. It doesn't. Oh, make it doesn't. I guess no. That's the thing. There's you can be a sort of murderous Batman in this game and still achieve the bet. You know, quote unquote, good ending. As I understand yeah. it, yeah. And, and you know, I think. I just think with a game that where there's a sandbox, brilliant level design, lots of different tools and goodies to play with, yep. I think you are setting yourself up for disappointment if you try and take that kind of trophy hardline um, approach without circling back around to do some of the experimentation. Um, sure. I just think you're 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 robbing yourself slightly there, and I you know I find it difficult to blame the game. Uh, I, I, I so don't. I very, brains, I very specifically you know, you know. don't because yeah, they yeah, put yeah. in mechanics and mission options and it's borne out. The reason I say achievements is not because I wanted all the achievements, but because that tells me something about how the developers want to encourage people to play the game at least once. They want people to go through mm-hmm. and yeah. do a no-killing ghost run because they put it there to say, we made sure you can do this in the yeah. game. And they well, encourage they it in game as well. To come up with the, unless they had ten minutes to come up with the trophies before submitting it, and they just sort of knocked it off and didn't think. Well, too sure, about but it. by that token, <laughs> we could we could throw out any suspicion about what the developers wanted to take away from the game because all of it could have just yeah. been a decision on a whim. 
Um, I think I think sandbox is is yeah. what they is what they want. And, you know, and immersive sim is just have your make your own fun. Is my take. Oh, definitely, Abso- absolutely. And and my counter to that would be the likes of other stealth games where I still felt like I was having a whale of a time by doing the no kill, no alert playthrough. Yeah. And in this yeah. game, yeah, I can definitely... it feels like less of a fun experience, or at least it feels like I could be having more fun. And that's up to me to change my playthrough partway through, but equally well, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say I don't think anyone in this game deserves to die because I don't think anyone deserves to die, and I should be able to feel like that's still a fun experience to have, unless it's a Last of Us where right. they kind of pretend you can get around enemies without killing them, but ultimately... They're going to push you pretty hard, and in some cases, make you engage right. in combat. I agree with you completely too. With the uh, with the choosing whether or not um, everybody anybody deserves to die, and feeling like everybody nobody deserves to die, and I think that that comes uh, back to the way I played the game as Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, like as Emily, I was um, very much playing more stealth. I think I knocked I knocked everybody out unless I absolutely had mm-hmm. to or was put in a legal situation just to get out of things, or, or or if I couldn't suss out the solution of how to do it um, to non-lethal. But I, I was generally very low-cast, very non-lethal in that playthrough. And then, But then when it yeah. came to Corvo, when I was playing through as Corvo, it just was like, like, I was just, I was really, I kind of got into my own personal RP of both characters, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, Emily is, you know, the, the Empress, and, and I think she'd be much more hesitant to kill. Yeah. And then, meanwhile, Corvo was like, I spent a whole life killing, so I'm not going to stop now, yeah. you know? Like, and also, I feel like, and also his daughter's life is on the line, so it would yes, seem exactly, sensible yeah. for him to fall yeah. back into that right. role. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so so yeah. from that point of view, I completely understand it. Yeah, and I, I do think you're absolutely right, though, and and the part I didn't consider was that they do only really give you that one out for your main target, yeah. as opposed to yeah. several different paths to get o- to that although, outcome. Although, to, to be fair, though, um, it's, you know, a lot of thought and design work has gone into yeah. those mm-hmm. those kind of non-lethal exits, and, and there's a lot of storytelling sure. that goes into them, like, well, sure. you yeah. know, Ramsey wants the treasure in the safe room so badly that you're just going to lock him in with it. So it's useless to him. Um, the yeah. uh, uh, Hypatia, you can cure her of her own, you know, malady or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jindosh, you can do to him what he was planning to do to Sokolov. And it turns out to be a fate worse than death. You yeah. know, this sort of brain lobotomy that leaves him hampered. Um, the So I think that, uh, and then especially with the crack in the slab, Mm. with the way you can leave that with a really nice you know ending and and changing time and and stuff like that so i think so much thought has gone into that non-lethal ending that there's i don't know i i I feel it would be asking quite a lot of them to yeah yeah yeah. we're just i i think we're just talking about like preferred ways of playing and Mm. uh like yeah like certain like certain styles like even if like the stuff in there is all incredibly considered and everything feels polished and feels like yeah if you do this um you're going to have a fun time it does fit like it, it, like the non-lethal at least i'm not going to say non-lethal but the non-lethal ghost approach is more limited as compared to other stealth games in the yeah. market but like like as i'm going to go on to now like the way I played this game the second time round is I didn't use the quick save quick unless I died straight up. Like I didn't use the quick save quick load mm-hmm. feature at all. Like every mistake was a mistake, 
and I just lent into it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah. And and um, I had a huge amount of fun because my approach to morality in this game is very much like if you're a member of the coup and you are a willing participant yeah. Yeah. in this coup, you're dead. <laughs> like it was just my 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 view of like like okay, these guards who are definitely working with uh, Delilah, they're dead. The kind of like guards who are just out on the street, like you know, patrolling, just trying to keep order. Yeah, the, the engineers on the you're Death just, Star. You're yeah. just <laughs> all right fair enough uh, but no you know what i mean I like no, there's, there's a difference yeah. between like um the you know the soldiers on on dash boot versus the the ss yeah. uh proper um like yeah i i i took that approach of like you're not like directly complicit uh so you you your life is spared and, and if you um, use the, I, the the body disappearing power um, yeah, it's so satisfying yeah. because yeah. they just disappear. It's oh, it's great. It's great. You see, I I I didn't get that because like my my approach is like aggressive, dirty stealth. Like <laughs> dirty so, stealth. that's my default stance now. Is like like that's what I'm going to call it from now on, <laughs> dirty stealth. Where like I I I would allow the guards to know of my yeah. presence, but not like me as a person so i quite like quite happily like take out a guard uh grab their body go up onto a a lamp or, or or some kind of high point and then just throw the body down on the guards and watch them all panic because like like i i'm back uh, yeah, right? yeah i'm an agent say, of fear yeah, the the arc and effect um, of, of so, stringing your body up and then knocking it down to see the guards <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Panic and in fear, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Along with the um, powers and the way they intersect with the sandbox, um, there's also um, collectibles, upgrades, uh, and an economy to the game. Um, so, in terms of um, upgrades and power ups, um, you've got the runes, which are dotted um, throughout the environment, and then there's always a couple on a. Uh, an altar um which you can you then get some detail from the outsider about your target or the general locale or what's going on um and you also have the bone charms that kind of act as special modifiers um if you choose to pursue this as an upgrade path you can get into bone shaft crafting um which allows you to um combine bone charms together um, which saves on uh, bone charm slots and um, allows you to have a greater variety of modifiers. Um, like while we're on that, actually, um, were there any like particular kind of builds that people like to play with with the bone charms? Definitely the tap. It's the Twitter tap, right? Because you get to the tap yeah. to fill up your mana because you don't want to use any of your top up things. But it takes about a minute to do a full bar. So then you pull out Twitter on your phone once you're just like twisting the tap. That's my favorite. That's my favorite one. Um, definitely on my second playthrough, uh, which was a, a lethal. Everyone's everyone's getting the blade on this one. Um, at that point, I was still using far reach a lot, so was uh, using the verticality. So I stacked a couple of charms that would uh, increase health and mana with um vertical takedowns i can't remember what they're called specifically but yeah um 
killing people from above, death from above or whatever it's called. Uh, yeah, I would make sure I stacked that when it suited. But I quite like the fact you could switch them out if a particular level, say, had more dogs than witches, vice versa. There was different uh, bone charms you could put in to kind of work, help in, in that respect. Um, there were some that, that I never kind of saw the use in necessarily, like for being underwater, increasing your breathing, that that's a wasted slot unless I happen to be diving around the ship to get a couple of runes or whatever, um, or that one section to sneak into Luca Bell's um, vault where you've got to go underwater for quite a long way. So there's there's some in there that are very uh, location-specific or circumstance-specific, but I found it quite flexible to be able to kind of switch that out as necessary. I, I was quite set and forget. What I like about this game is, depending on what style you choose, I feel very happy to ignore uh, a lot of the like the black market upgrades to weapons and stuff. Like if I know I'm going to do a particular playthrough, I'm I feel really good not using this or that bone charm and not getting this or that upgrade mm-hmm. instead of feeling any anxiety like oh maybe I should change them every time or maybe I should afford you know try and upgrade every piece of weapon so I think that's quite quite cool it feels quite a nice spread I think there's there's something else on the economy here I wanted to point out even on my uh, lethal playthrough so on my uh, stealth playthrough obviously you can't get into easily a lot of the places where you're collecting the coins you need to be able to to open up some of the blueprint unlocks um Whereas even on my more lethal playthrough and I was exploring more of the level, I was finding more of the collectibles and more of the cash getting up maybe near to 50% of the cash that was available in the level. I can't imagine scouring the entire level to get all of it. I really can't. But I never felt like I had so much cash where I could just throw them away on upgrades for, say, the pistol, which I just wasn't going to use versus the, the crossbow. So absolutely, Tom, I completely agree. Focusing on what seemed like a good upgrade to me, knowing that that would be something I would get use out of rather than just, well, I can afford this one right now, so I'll just take it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've definitely tailored my blueprint upgrades uh, quite significantly um, based on, based I tend, on that. Yeah, I, I tend to be fairly boring with these, like kind of like throughout all games. Like it's really hard for me, although some of the charms are like really fun. Mm. Like add some new thing, but like, like it's very hard for me to not use the charms that give me more health, more yeah. mana, like you know, more defense or whatever. I I can't like I'd love to like you know um what's the one um is it the the falling star? I had to look at the name of it. Uh, the drop assassination restores some mana, yeah. like just encouraging me to like just leap on enemies' heads. Like yeah, that'd be fun. But there's another one that just gives me more mana all the time, and <laughs> yeah. like I just yeah. can't. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> take I, just, the flat I, bonus. I can't in yeah, my absolutely. brain. Even though I know the other one would probably make me have more fun, I have this weird anxiety about like, but what if I'm in this position where I don't? And then of course I end the game with you know having too much of everything. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm fairly boring when it comes to that stuff. Unfortunately, I should try to. Branch I think that's out. understandable because um, certainly if I've got an option between a, a flat ten percent increase in health or a ten percent chance that I'll get more health when I use a health file, I'll take the flat bonus I know I've got rather than the one that. I didn't ever notice when I used a skill and it didn't use any mana. I just didn't, I wasn't watching my, my, you know, if I had to far reach somewhere, I wasn't watching the meter to see whether or not it didn't use any mana this time around or whether I I got an extra bullet in in the pistol this time around, you know. 
Yeah, this is all before the time with the design trends moved towards, I'm thinking of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, but I'm sure it happens in Genshin Impact and a billion other games where it's like, put on this thing, plus two stealth attack, you know, you know, of this atomization of every single stat and you get like a 5% boost to something or a 1% boost to something. Mm. And just like breaking down stats across the board and making it all so um, anatomical. Whereas here, it, it, I just, the bone charms seem more light fun to me. I don't feel like I'm heavily specking a build or that I need to attend to them all the time. I feel like I want to collect them all because it's fun. You'll see more of the level if you go out of your way to kind of get yeah. every rune and get every bone charm. Even if I know it's like a, uh, you know, one of the bad bone charms, which I tend not to use, the ones with the, the, the double side, double edged sword, the cor- corrupted bone charms. Uh, charms, yeah, yeah. corrupted ones. And, yeah. But I still want to collect them, and I still like having them and just sort of flicking through them, but not in a really micromanagey way. I, you know, yeah. it's a game where I just don't feel like I have to spend too much time in the menu, and that's brilliant, and that that's actually quite refreshing yeah. now. Um, this side of you know 2018, I guess, is when the I feel like those design trends came in. Yeah, I mean, like I, I abs- like I think I said this on several issues of Kenny Rince, but like I absolutely despise that design trend of like, like uh, 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 Gary Butterfield on um, uh, Watch Out for Fireballs describes it as the two percent frost damage <laughs> trend. Um, like I, yeah, I, I hate it. Like uh, what I want is like. And I think the bone charms do this is like meaningful changes to the way that I yeah. play yeah. Um, without it kind of being feeling too vital. Like being able to regain mana by eating white rats is not essential, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I'm just going around the level <laughs> munching some white rats. Yeah, um, and like that, because for me, like mana conservation was like uh, my primary yeah. concern with bone charms more than anything else. So I took the flat like upgrade that Brian took, but then I also took eat the white rats. <laughs> I also took if I slash the blood flies, I get mana back. I also took every time I go for a swim, I get some mana back. Like I've got all those abilities and it did make for like strange pass through levels where I'm just like, oh no, I'm a little low on mana. Better go for a swim. <laughs> um, so See, for me, that was always, like that. There's so many taps in the game. For me, it was always, oh, there's yeah. a tap, get Twitter out. <laughs> minute later move that, on that's <laughs> the thing like it, the tap i know what you mean like it's probably more effective and more reliable but the the standing by the tap yeah, great, and then it. looking at twitter i didn't want that <laughs> what i wanted was right action manner uh action manner conservation right. i'm gonna dive into the water i'm gonna pick up a white rat that's what but i mean the, the good thing um, is though more, the more confident you feel in your mana supply the more free you feel yeah. to use your powers and the more yeah. fun the yeah. game is yeah. ultimately yeah. so i think there's a very subtle way with the bone charms they're sort of saying look have you know we want you to have mana you know we want you don't we don't want you just to be counting down your your 10 vials or whatever and it always feels valuable to use you know too valuable to use those you sort of want to you feel instinctively you want to conserve those because there's a big number counting down from 10 that you just always worry you're going to hit zero and you never do because you know, yeah. none of us, I, I doubt, are playing with the kind of wild abandon that YouTubers, you know, really experimental YouTubers are doing insane things with chaining powers together and having a lot of fun with it. And I kind of wish I was that player. But at least with this game, 
the opportunity is there to be that kind of player. And I never ran out of mana, mana juice. I could have been a lot freer with my powers, even, even still. But there's there's definitely a, a signal there with those bone charms that they, they want you to have mana. They want you to feel like you can always get it back and you can yeah. always use it and you should use some of your heavier powers and not... Yeah. always feel that you're trying to conserve but them. yeah and and offering each player a different way of mitigating some of their uh Adamire solution use um which is the name for, i've just remembered for the the blue vial that you replace you replenish your manner with um giving players different ways so if you want to be uh uh you know um you want to be Tom in the desert running to every tap or you want to be Josh on a drunken route home just sort of stumbling around alley to alley looking for looking for rats you can do rats either too. way and you can kind of accentuate that a little bit with the bone charms and lean in the direction you prefer but everyone kind of no matter how you're playing unless you're doing a no powers run through you're gonna need um you're gonna need mana for for your abilities whether you're going toe to toe with enemies or whether you're you're avoiding them using a lot of kind of far reach or blink or whatever, um, you're always going to want for for that. So it's good to have different ways of mitigating the use a little bit. Let's talk about the level design uh, because I think it's fair to say that it's an aspect of the game that has gotten the most coverage, the most conversation in terms of podcasts, in terms of media. Um, and and in my view, completely justifiably yeah. so. Um, like there are nine um, levels um, in Dishonored Two, and bar the first level, um, a long day in Dunwall, um, I think they're an incredible collection of uh, designs and concepts. Um, there are some standouts which I'm sure we're going to talk about, but I think universally like all all of them apart from the first one all of them show a a care to attention to detail um to creating a unique experience within that level so that every level feels like like it's exp- uh like it's exploring a theme like a thesis statement um uh, it, it's just incredible. I think I think the level design in Dishonored Two is amongst the best uh, in in the genre. I think it's incredible. Yeah. And that and art design are yeah. such yeah. such high tent poles for this game that e- even just yeah. one of them to this standard would see me, you know, coming to a game like this based on people's recommendations. But the fact you've got both combined and the way they play off each other, because even you you can. So Noah Caldwell Davis was going on about the the, the YouTube uh, essayist was going on about art within art. The fact that the art design and I know we're talking, not talking about art design, we're talking about level design. But the art design is so amazing that you you'll turn around and there's this beautiful links, beautiful painting yeah. or sculpture or whatever. But you can equally do the same as just any point from up high, um, and even in these kind of connective tissue levels, outdoor, you know, urban kind of the, the, the street, few street blocks or whatever, you get high up enough and you just look down, you just look at the opportunities and the enemy placement and the target building and then where other things are scattered. And it's just masterful. It just feels so deliberate uh, and yet. Um, these aren't organic spaces that make particular sense as like a town or whatever 
but they don't feel unnatural either because they're so cleverly um, set out. And then the art design on top of that, the lighting, everything is is just so excellent. Um, very interestingly, very side point on on that. The uh, talking to some of the virtual photography community who ha- hold this game in extremely high esteem, um, who some have criticised other AAA games for having quite flat lighting, recent AAA games, the last sort of three, four years. But they go back to this and Control as, as just incredibly lit for gameplay reasons as as well as just general artistic reasons. So I think, um, I, yeah, I would go further to say that the um, the artistic design, the, the aesthetic of the levels does bleed into the level design and the gameplay as well. And I would point to, I think there's only two levels where I would maybe get them confused as to which one was which, and that's Edge of the World in the Karnaka Streets and then uh, Dust District when you're kind of moving around the two different uh, gang areas because the the palette out in the world seems kind of similar, but every other one, every other level has its own distinct look and feel, and there's things that I immediately think of, and that's a, a palette thing. It's a it's an artistic design thing, but it also goes to the level like the the likes of the Ademeyer Institute in the um the Good Doctor where you're going after uh, Alexandra Hypatia. Um, that is a vertical lift shaft with spines coming off it, and then you go to something yep. like the Royal Conservatory, which could seem like a very similar thing. You've got the the vertical lift shaft at one end of the building, but then you've got circular floors around uh, a central area like a um, uh, a museum type set piece and that makes a very different thing where you're winding your way through the Ademeyer Institute but in the Clockwork Mansion you can just go to the one floor and just jump all the way up but you know you're going to be seen so you kind of it speaks to the way you move around the level and it speaks to um, the feeling that any one of these level names or locations gives me is a very different mm. feeling for how I had to approach it and that speaks to the aesthetic and the level design and then the skills and abilities I was making use of. And these are just be- these are just beautiful places. Mm. You you get up high uh, from the exterior of the Grand Palace and the design is just just mind-blowing. It's yeah. just incredible. Um you know, we hit some of these highs with hit, the Hitman trilogy, but the, these are just the Ademeyer Institute as well. I I just there's something so aesthetically pleasing about just the front of the building where mm. they start start you off and you just yeah. You understand the building you're about to assault. Yeah, there's there's a level of consistency here that I just don't think you see in many other games, so it, just in general. Like, um, I, I remember specifically the progression from the Edemeyer Institute to the Clockwork Mansion to the Royal Conservatory, and just thinking each one as I'm playing through each level, like, like when am I going to get to the dud? You know what I mean? Every one of these games has a, has a level that kind of dips, you know, kind of takes you out of your own. Like, I remember specifically, I didn't play the original Hitman. I didn't play it um, episodically. I played it when the whole thing was out, so I... You know, I played I played Paris and I played Sapiens and then I got to Marrakesh and I was kind of like, ah, you know, that was my kind of dip for me personally. But in Dishonored 2, it was just once I got just kind of set loose, it was just kind of every every level was just a banger for, for different reasons, as James was explaining. Like, it, it they felt unique. Yeah. They all had their own visual language. They all had their own... Having your your own individual antagonist in each level gave it kind of like wraps the personality kind of around the person that you're after in such a unique yeah. and you you cannot separate the two. It's not it feel it truly feels like one like each place cannot exist without the existence of the person that's that's within it and and they do such a good job with um, 
like lighting as Thomas talking about the the visual signposting that just leads you into these corners of these levels that reveal more about the world it's just it's it's a masterclass in some of that stuff and i i remember never feeling let down by each each level as i got to even though there are some some lows and i could talk about i i personally didn't love playing through the crack in the slab uh level like just from a gameplay perspective but from a design perspective you couldn't help but just be impressed by what they were accomplishing and yeah it just it every level has its own strengths and and i feel the 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 highs are so high in each of these levels that it's hard to kind of it's not hard to criticize i could find things to criticize in each one but but it's hard to come away from any of them being like wow that it was just an incredible experience mm. they the the when you say that the 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 target their personality feeds into yes. kind of the level and i think it's telling perhaps that for me the most memorable levels are where the target is the most memorable which is yep. the the clockwork mansion because Kieran Jindosh is just this he's an archetype you know clever and mad evil inventor or whatever but it be just really well done he's memorable really hateful and you want to kill him and then Luca Rebel with uh, just this unbelievably over the top performance but also this um just disgusting tyrant who who yeah. lives in the lap of luxury mm. and you just want to murder his face but actually the way he gets taken out is is very satisfying as well so uh, and the buildings that they inhabit are reflect their personalities and are all the stronger for that that marriage um and yeah. of course the art design and the placement of sculptures yeah. and paintings and furniture and clothes and plants like some of the plant life and in the royal conservatory as well like you, you look around and there's these crazy witch herb lab stuff and then suddenly there's a skinned body stuck on a pike and it's like whoa that's disgusting <laughs> yeah. um so there's just so much richness in the levels as well that's that's pure environmental kind of art design yeah but it feels so everything feels so cohesive and connected I want to talk about some of the standouts <laughs> in a bit more detail. Um, uh, Tom, you were already talking about Kieran Jindosh. Um, I feel that the Clockwork Mansion is one of those levels that, um, you know, we, we've said all of these levels are great, but the Clockwork Mansion is, feels like a standout in terms of the the cultural conversation around this game. Um I I jokingly feel even though like there's nothing like this in this series um in terms of the intricacy of how oh. the level is constructed but Kirin Jindosh and the Clockwork Mansion I feel like it, it feels like BioShock to me in this weird way like Kirin J- oh, yeah. Jindosh looks feels and looks like he's auditioning to be the next big <laughs> bad in a in a BioShock game um, and just the atmosphere and the tone of the Clockwork Mansion kind of feels like, um, you know, the the um, moments where you're you're kind of confronted with an you know a particular uh, ego within a Bioshock environment like Rapture, like you know, it's the personality of Kieran Jindosh is infecting every element, um, and then just. It's an incredible piece of design, like the the way that the the building transforms, and it's not just the way that it transforms; it's the nooks and crannies in between, you know, outside of where where you're intended to go. Like you know, the 
the the concrete um the messy concrete uh, exterior that you're not meant to mm. see those nooks and crannies yeah. all of that when, stuff when you're in his bedroom uh, it, when you you've got the heart and you know there's a i can't remember whether it's a rune or a bone charm there's a rune or a bone charm here and you know it's here and you can't flip in see it and you can't work you keep pulling the lever you can't work out how you get into it and then you and then you're like oh but if i pull this then quickly go in there and then, oh, it actually goes down. And then suddenly I'm underneath this room. And just those little nooks and crannies. If you think you can get in somewhere, you probably can. And there's probably something there. Yeah, speaking to the the Bioshock reference, George, I got strong Sandra Cohen vibes from this uh, level. Just from the fact that this is his little... Um, Fiefdom. Palace. Yeah, exactly. He's in charge. He runs the show. No one actually wants to work with him or be anywhere near him, so he's got <laughs> to basically build his own clockwork, uh, you know, uh, puppets, essentially. Um, but he's so much cleverer, and like even just speaking to, you can go through that level and he will not know you're in there uh, until the very end. So you can kind of almost Riddler-like pull, pull the wool over his eyes and prove that you're uh, smarter than he uh, etc but yeah i definitely got uh, strong vibes of that um i think for me the moment where you first realize you so for me it was i was walking along a corridor with some guards up ahead i spotted a window to my left cracked the window open and i'm like oh well that's not obviously outside but it's outside of the building he wants me to see hop through and it's very much that kind of portal moment portal, like I, well let's not spoil anything of just seeing behind the curtain and working out that there is a level beyond the level that they presented you with and you're getting behind the scenes to areas that are not finished to stuff that is clearly like prototype stuff that's been discarded just behind the scenes and even Jindosh comes on over the the speaker and says to you you know I can't see where you are anymore because he presumably did not think anyone would think to step outside of his little fairground attraction um the the thing for me that the slightly lessened and it's it's not a knock it's just a personal taste thing was what you're talking about Tom with kind of pulling a handle and spotting the gap between as the room's changing the gap you can get into I I, I never shook the idea that the difference between getting to an area you shouldn't be in but the designer expected you to and getting to an area you shouldn't be in and really you actually couldn't do much with and it sometimes i was behind the scenes and was like pulling a handle well i can't really do anything with this version of the room pulling the handle again no i can't do anything with this version of the room and then trying to spot when it was moving where i could get to that would be useful it ended up feeling a little bit like sometimes not like i was prodding and poking at it to 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 work out where my my gap was but a little bit like it was trial and error to work out where i could get to that the developer would allow me to then move forward mm. uh, and so it sometimes felt a little too much like trial and error and not as much like me playing with the environment as i think was intended and it sounds like you definitely got from so that was a slight a, a mm. couple of moments of frustration when i kind of felt like right okay i've explored now i want to move forward in the level and i couldn't see how to do it and it just felt like it kind of uh, was a, a little frustrating in spots but un undeniably just awe-inspiring to see how the level works yeah. and how it's put together and uh knowing that you start off the level like face to face with the person you're supposed to be getting to he is a corridor away and you cannot get to him even with all of your powers is incredibly powerful 
Um, I mentioned up top that I wasn't a, you know, we wouldn't be able to credit every level designer involved in Dishonored 2. Uh, and specifically, it's really difficult to actually track a line between levels and, and specific designers. Um, but in this case, it's widely known who's responsible for a lot of the heavy lifting with the Clockwork Mansion. So I did want to credit uh, level designer da uh, Dana Ellen Nightingale. Um, uh, just incredible piece of work. I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine how you put this level together from scratch. Seems yeah. to me obvious proof of game design as an iterative process because I can't conceive of someone, and maybe yeah. that's me selling uh, Danelle and short, but I can't imagine putting this together from conception off. It, it's too much. <laughs> it's too much for me yeah. to conceive playing through it, let alone Versus designing. one of these static buildings. Okay, a crack in the slab is, is different. Um, and there was something in the water between that and Titanfall 2, you know, with that that's quick switching, providing mm. just such brilliant gameplay opportunities. Mm. But something like the Grand Palace, where it's a static building, but it's the, like with Hitman, like we all know, anyone who's played the, you know, Hitman 2016 onwards, the kind of Groundhog Day, the, the the building that sits there, and but it's the people who move around in it that that's the interesting bit, and the design of the building itself. So something more static, like the Grand Palace, that doesn't have moving rooms, but still feels like a living place mm. that is fun to get on the roof, go in the bottom, go in the front door, you know, poke at, yeah. prod at from every yeah. every direction because it's got a really lush uh, exterior as well. Um, whereas the Clockwork Mansion doesn't have an exterior like that so it is a different no. feeling um i mean you can yeah. go outside mm. literally you know the outdoor space but it's it's still part of a level design in a way that going over the roof of the grand palace is a bit different i'd say i mean you say there's something yeah. in the water yeah. about cracking the slab in titanfall 2 there's something in the water about this level in titanfall 2 as well because <laughs> titanfall 2 has that sequence where the the floors and, and walls are all moving around you as you move through it and it's very much a similar sort yeah. of feeling uh yeah i think it uh, we, we we're gonna move on yeah. to crack on the slab because uh, uh it's one of my favorites um as well but i do want to just mention at this point that unfortunately brian edwards had to leave the recording uh due to an emergency at work um we will be allowing Brian to <laughs> allowing Brian. We will be letting Brian uh, say his piece on uh, Dishonored Two at the end um, with his summary. Uh, but unfortunately, he can't join us for the rest of this conversation. Um, so on that topic, um, a cracker than slab. Um, like yeah, it's so. My job, I I get mm -hmm. to see a lot of indie games. Um, so I think there was something in the water yeah. generally in game development. Um, so there were two projects that I saw that will remain nameless and the developer will remain name nameless for obvious reasons um, that were working on entire games that were based mm. on this yeah. uh, subject, uh, this uh, mechanic idea. Um, and and um, I saw these before I played Dishonored 2 or Titanfall 2. Um, and I can only imagine the exasperation <laughs> and frustration those developers felt when playing both of these games. And um, on the part of um, the developers of Titanfall 2 and Dishonored 2, like the bemusement of <laughs> the, these two games kind yeah. of coming out around the same time. And 
I think it's it's funny because the ways in which a crack in the slab and uh, effects and cause, which is the level in Titanfall Two, are different. I should probably say what the the, the actual mechanic is. The mechanic is that you you can travel back and uh, forth at two specific points in time, um, but the way these two games approach um, that idea, I think, is really illustrative of the style mm. of developer they are because in effects and cause uh it really is a set yeah. piece generator the be the ability to travel through time it's it's not the kind of experimental uh yeah. toy that it is in dishonored 2 it's much more of a roller coaster mm. ride experience um whereas here in a crack in the slab, like I, Brian mentioned earlier that he wasn't a huge fan of this. Uh, this is this would probably be uh, competing with the Clockwork Mansion for my favorite level um, because of the number of ideas and opportunities that they managed yeah. to mine out mm -hmm. of this one idea. Um, one one uh, sequence that really sticks out in my memory is opening up the safe. And the kind of procedure you have to yeah. go through of burning the dog so that a blood fly nest doesn't form around the dog in the future that covers up the code for the safe so that then you can enter in the code to the safe. It's just like a really beautiful sequence of events that leads to leads ultimately just really you know leads to a collectible but it's so memorable and 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 a really creative use of this I mean, that's time a, travel that's an mechanic. ocarina of time thing isn't it it's not um, and before that yeah the, the idea of switching between two yeah. dimensions or whatever it is is not new in game design but it's a uniquely video game thing yeah that you need to be in a video game immersed yeah. in it to kind of experience. And since you're playing this immersive game with its dark tone and brilliant art design and something, it just feels like the 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 old not the ultimate expression of it, but a really solid expression of that idea with all the richness of the world. And there's something almost I love time travel stories um because of their sort of bittersweet romance of them. And there is a tiny bit of that bittersweet thing in here as well with the kind of the rundownness of the manner when you first enter. Mm. And then you go through the story and it's quite a cool story level, very cool story level, actually, one of the better ones about this this ritual to bring Delilah back and how it affects Stilton and where you can find him and what you can do with him that then completely changes the look of the level and the layout and... And the people in the the manor on your way out, and there's just something yeah. really rich and um and pleasing about that, and kind of the the romance of of what might have been or or or, or seeing a different future. There's something something in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, this is is my favorite level in the in the game. I've got to say, um, I absolutely respect respect Clockwork Mansion, but. Playing with this idea, which it kind of makes a little bit of of a not a mockery, but it raises questions over the rush to say games like the Medium or upcoming Ratchet and Clank um, Rift Apart are only possible because of next gen hardware. Yeah. When <laughs> th these levels are not reskins of like they're structurally similar, 
but there are very different things going on in each time period that you're in in terms of where um how they're dressed uh where you've got blockages where you've got access where you don't in terms of enemies that are there or not there all sorts so it feels like you are moving essentially between two different levels and it's completely on the fly you can see into one as you're in the other um and what i love about this is in a game where you have blink and far reach you should feel like nightcrawler all the time Mm. and i never quite did until this level because yeah the difference between nightcrawler is he doesn't just go there he moves into a different dimension travels and then pops out that's my understanding of it apologies if i got that wrong but that's what this game has you do no that's correct and yeah. you can pop up in front of an enemy let them see you intentionally just pop away from them they will still run towards you you turn around now you're behind them pop out gone that then alerts the next enemy and you literally end up for want of a better phrase bamfing around a corridor a room (laughs) a level whatever see what you really want with that is like a super hot playback though so you could just watch the blow by blow immediately afterwards (laughs) but nonetheless i felt it 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 is that x2 opening scene of just bump 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 and you only see it in flashes in the reaction but that's the important point in that uh opening in in the white house in x2 we only really see it from the perspective of the people being attacked. We don't get to see it from the perspective of the okay. attacker. Yeah. And this level, you see it from the the attacker's perspective where you just know when you hit that trigger, you're going to pop out right behind the person that yeah. you are about to attack, knock out, whatever. And then that is going to have a knock-on effect. And every time someone sees you, unlike the rest of the game where you have to panic and think, right, where am I getting to safety? How am I getting away? It's just a trigger pull and you're gone. And it's so empowering in a way that even powers as as strong as Blink and Far Reach just aren't. And it just completely changes the way the game plays for me in such a cool way. Yeah. In interviews with the developers, they talked about how nervous they were about removing all the powers except for the timepiece um, for this specific level. And... Um, I understand that, but the timepiece is so fun and so powerful that if you had every other, uh, you know, element in, in the chaos cocktail of your abilities in there as well, it would distract from the focus, and, and but also be too much. Like, I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. It would just it would just be a nightmare yeah. for the developers. Um, but but. It, it's it yeah. shows confidence right in in that idea that the idea is strong enough to stand alone to yeah. stand um in isolation um and the timepiece itself is so elegant and um and the 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 thing that amazes me like the teleport the way that works is very similar to Titanfall 2 it's instantaneous it's it's very slick um, the thing that amazes me is actually the lenses on the timepiece where you can peer into that other reality um, and yeah. position yourself and plan based on peering into that lens. I don't know what it is, but like even on this second playthrough, it kind of gave mm. me chills, like being able to kind of um, have this window into another world and see these yeah. uh, guards panicking and and running around like completely yeah. oblivious yeah. to where I am and and what potential chaos <laughs> I'm about yeah. to unleash on them. 
it's it's really effective and the music like we'll we'll talk about the music in a bit in isolation the music in a crack in the slab is my favorite in in this game as well it's so atmospheric and creepy um i love it um yeah cool i want to end our um conversation on uh level design with this extract from john's piece on the forum um when it comes to the amazing level design i feel the clockwork mansion and a crack in the slab dominate the hype around dishonored 2's level design which is a shame as every one of the environments here seems intricate enough to have supported hitman style extra missions and challenges had arcane been inclined in fact, the final mission returns to the opening level, and the death of the outsider revisits the Royal Conservatory. While those headline-hogging levels are brilliant, when I think of this game's design, I also think of creeping around Kira, Kira Gardens, running through the dust storms um, of the Bastia Mining District, and causing mayhem in the Duke's Palace. The Dust District might actually be my favourite, as it's almost two levels in one, where you can infiltrate one area to befriend the faction occupying the other, decide to go up against both, or bypass it all entirely and figure out the puzzle for the Jindosh lock. Because of this, I find it the most replayable, as it's genuinely different every time. If you want to gain an appreciation for just how well-constructed these levels are, consider a no-powers run. When I did this, I was impressed to discover that there isn't just one route to your objective available without blink or far reach, but almost the entire map is navigatable if you hunt around for a path. Of the five playthroughs I've done, it was almost the most fun because it rewarded really thorough exploration and meant I didn't bypass parts of the environment with Blink. I, I, I do just want to add, that's a great feedback. I did really enjoy that level. It was a couple of years ago now, uh, as I recall it. Um, that whole section was just a superb bit of the game because I went up to the Jindosh lock. My wife and I love logic puzzles. So we solved that. So I could have, you know, just yeah. bypassed mm -hmm. the dust district. But then I went and did the dust district anyway. And just I remember going over every inch of it and it being uh, and taking out both the leaders i can't remember exactly i was doing a non-lethal so i must have done uh, done it quite carefully but there's so many hidey holes it is a, a brilliance and then there's a crack in the slab immediately after that so um so it's just a such a rich part of the game um that that's so rewarding for careful play yeah so in that level you can crack the lock as you say as a logic puzzle you can also go and find there's a hidden a hidden stash somewhere that's hinted at in one of the two kind of uh, gang leaders um, rooms and you can sneak in there, grab that and then go off to this kind of hidden stash location and you find the scrap of paper that has the clue on it. Or you can non-lethally knock out one leader and take them to the other. So you can kind of work it non-lethally in a bunch of different ways um, in this level in particular. Um, or you can do the thing of just going and killing one and taking them to the other and then you get that powerful moment of as soon as you step across the boundary that you know otherwise you would be persona non grata with their body slung over your shoulder 
they just like everyone's like oh hey wow <laughs> yeah come on in and you just walk through the level uh <laughs> yeah. you wonder fun. if this game had been released a couple of years later and they'd been able to see and debrief on how hitman structured itself you know extremely experimental kind of episodic thing um, with the the kind of repeating groundhog yeah. day sort of puzzle boxes you do wonder whether the arcane team would have looked at that and had pause to how they were gonna maybe carve up the game more or or take a different approach to it mm. so um it is worth touching on that the game has a new game plus mode um, essentially this allows you to go into the game with a bunch of runes that you've already unlocked on your first playthrough and then also have access to the entire suite of powers regardless of who you pick. So if you picked um, Emily first time round, you now have access to uh, Ben Time, uh, to Wind Blast, to Rat Swarm in your second playthrough with that character, which I think is a yeah. great move. Um, Ex- it re- except not until the second yeah. level. Yeah. So you have to do that yeah, whole true. first boring no powers level without anything, having just yeah. enthusiastically clicked the no new game <laughs> plus button, wanting to attack yeah. that first level with all your powers, and they still don't give them to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the low point of the game, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, we've touched on visuals throughout um, the recording. Um, there are a few fi- a few other things that are worth mentioning, but I do want to read this uh, last point from, from John again. Visually, Dishonored 2 doesn't have the original's painterly art style, but I think that the more realistic style works well for Karnaka, which is bright and sunny, as well as swarming and stinking in the words of Billy Lurk. The fidelity really makes it all pop out of the screen, and I've spent hours taking screenshots of everything from the vistas to cluttered desks to the fabulous wanted posters and propaganda art. Kanaka is up there with Dunwall among my favourite video game cities. It feels so real, bustling, noisy and sweaty in a really vivid way. I recommend everyone go and check out um, some of the virtual photography that's happened with this game, in particular Dead End Thrills, Duncan Jones' website, deadendthrills.com. He's got a collection for Dishonored 2. And even there's one shot where he's just looking up at a lamppost and it still manages to be this like artistically brilliant thing, not just because of his shot, but because of the the depth of design and for everything here. You know, uh, there's the, the fashion designer that came in to do the lead um female costumes uh, and just up and down there's so much to look at and to to drink in yeah. all the time um maya hansen is the the person you're referring to there the fact that they would do that at all um speaks credit um to the games um the game's devotion to design uh on on every level um I uh, this is one of the most visually uh, beautiful games I've ever played honestly um and I say that um you know owning a PlayStation 5 with Demon Souls remake on it like for all the you know like that game is technically an incredible achievement uh but in terms of art direction and design I think Dishonored 2 is just a high point for the industry it's just 
a wonder to behold. When you're on the boat looking over Karnaka and you look up, I mean, the the, the sea effects are, are really great as well, like on a technical yeah. art level. But you just look at that huge, the sweep of that mountain cliff thing going round and then you start to understand if you look at the maps and pay attention about the the, the, the wind tunnel that's coming through there. Um, and then when you get up, up above and you're seeing the, the, the density of the buildings from above, um, it's it's breathtaking. It's, it's honestly breathtaking. Yeah, I think um, as, as well, it just stands to say that part of what I meant about them doing a lot of world building that I really appreciated in the first game is there was enough there that they could have just set it in the same part of this game's world this time around where you start off in the palace, same again, and make your way out through Dunwall. But that they went to, no, let's go to a different part of this world and let's imagine, based on how different countries, different continents, different regions feel in our world, let's take inspiration from a completely different culture, a completely different um, climate and ecology and uh, differences in terms of the industry where Dunwall is very much whale oil and Karnaka is very much mining um, and uh, kind of technological advancement rather than whale oil had that kind of whale punk, I guess they referred to it as, whereas this feels much more <laughs> like like Jindosh's style of technology, um, which is maybe a bit more delicate uh, than the kind of brutish aspects of Dunwall. It's just, it's really uh, cool to see how they've thought about this world's different cultural influences and, and different feel that different places would have. Uh, really stunning. All, all the way yeah. down to materials, like the sculptures made of polished wood, the metal gleaming, or the, the swords and the railings and the, the material of the yeah. clothes, you know, the guards' uniforms in Karnaka and the hats. And the, the, everywhere, it's almost everywhere you look. I mean, in some ways... There, there are two visual aspects that let it down, and this is just purely because of time and development cost, right? When they repeat paintings that you can't rip off the wall for money, when they yeah. repeat paintings, it's a bit disappointing and boring because it's like, oh, I've seen that one. Okay, it's less special now. And the doors that you can't enter, this, these like dull, dark grey things, which I totally understand yeah. is a design thing to tell you visually. So it's very clever to tell you, this is not a door you can go through. Don't be disappointed. Just go a different way. But but, but actually those concessions, you know, because you can't have a brand new painting on every wall in every building, those two, two concessions, I guess, the disappointment I feel in them just serves to highlight how astonishing the rest of it is. Sure. Um, yeah. And like I said, I could listen to the art director talk about their influences <laughs> all day. The way he talked about um, Southern Europe, kind of yeah. Southern France, um, Italy, uh, the Mediterranean and how that influences just the, the tiny subtle touches, footwear and, and dust and the colour of the buildings yeah. and the bricks and all of that kind of stuff. They've gone into such detail. Um Again, it's it's. I just can't help but think that it's it it's one of those things where that all that design work is is just slightly undermined by the clunky voice acting and maybe some of the the story skating through the story or, or, or ham fisted story stuff. Um, it's definitely. I don't want to say this feels sounds wrong, but slightly lopsided development. Like you can tell where their priorities are. And you can tell yeah. clearly where the strengths of the team are is definitely in this art design and level design are just just impeccably strong. Yeah, 
Um, so on the audio front, um, we've briefly touched on sound design and the music. Um, I will just say on the music, I think it's incredible uh, at evoking atmosphere and the tone that they're going for for each individual level. I don't find it especially memorable as kind of, you know, pieces of music in isolation. I don't think I would listen to the Dishonored soundtrack, like as I'm doing the dishes or something like that. Um, but in context, <laughs> uh, in 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 the game itself, um, I think it's very effective. Yeah, I, I full disclosure, I worked on an official licensed soundtrack release for the Dishonored series. I would listen to it while I do the dishes. <laughs> no, so no, I, we sold we sold out. There's nothing to sell anymore. Um, the but but I listen. You know, as working on that product, I listened to it too, and I came to the same conclusion. You know, I listen to a lot of game music. I listen to some very strange and weird, otherwise unlistenable game music that other people might feel. And this one wasn't particularly interesting as an isolated listen. It's true, but it's it was really effective in the yeah. in the game and it marries really well with the sound design and i think apart from that audio engine quirk with the voices suddenly la- madly floating yeah. up from nowhere other than that everything else is really tastefully done and um you know dan licht is using some dulcimer things and interesting instruments and he's kind of doing that thing that composers do where he's got ethnic sounding instruments but for me, my ears, it doesn't sound like kind of cultural appropriation or whatever. It sounds just clever and subtle and um, really, really tasteful. And then there's also some diegetic uh, in-game songs where they've got um, lyrics that are talking about you know elements of the plot. And there's a fantastic credit song that's supposed to be Corvo and Emily singing together. But there's also street people who are singing these songs yeah. that you can find find around the world. And that's nice little detail as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can't really add anything on the music, but on the sound design, I do just, want, do just want to say the sounds they put to go with some of the powers, whether it's the the background sort of hum when you've got the the dark void on, which almost discourages me from use, overusing dark um, dark void, dark, dark vision, whatever it's called. Um, but just in that way of like, in the same way the palette of the game changes, you want that that sound to let you know that you're using this power um but you're cheating <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but also um like the the sounds when you use any of the powers but even the timepiece in cracking the slab that that there's a there is a sort of uh a droning bush almost i would say to moving between the two worlds that that just made it all the more satisfying to do and that was already incredibly satisfying conceptually so actually having the 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 sound around it really adds to that was just yeah great it was really strong i thought and and down again down to the details very quickly just when you swig an adamaya solution or something that swallow mm. sound just just excellent tiny little things like that really really make it you'd notice it if they were they were, they were gone i don't recall the gun being particularly punchy or whatever but it just doesn't matter does it because it's not it's not a shooter um they they get it right especially where it counts i think now i want to take us on to the last two bits of forum correspondence um if you want to hear your thoughts and feelings um on the 
future Cane and Rinse issues, go over to caneandrinse.com slash forum, find the topic um, on the issue title of your choice, and uh, write down your thoughts there. Um, so first of all, from uh, Toon Skatoon, in the winter of 2016, before I picked gaming back up as a hobby, I went into a GameStop to buy a Christmas gift for my nephew. And I vividly remember seeing Dishonored 2 discussed as one of those advertisements slash review shows American GameStops run on a loop that must drive the employees insane. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, I wasn't paying. Um, imagine being at E3 or uh, Warsaw Game Week and you're next to a Square Enix booth where they loop stuff over and over again. Anyway, <laughs> um, I wasn't paying too close attention to what they were saying, but the character design stood out, as did the host mentioning the game was set in a fictional country with a whaling-based economy. This was how I thought of the game until this last winter when I saw it simultaneously on Volume 10 of Kane and Rinse and on Game Pass, and decided to try my hand at whatever Dishonored 2 was. Without really knowing what I was doing, I ended up choosing to play through the game as Emily, and when I realised that this was more than just an aesthetic choice, I took a little time to read up on what the game was all about, and committed to trying for a low-chaos playthrough my first time. It turned out to be this great challenge that sometimes I could sort out on my own and sometimes required the help of a guide, but was immersive and rewarding from start to finish. Dishonored 2 seems so well considered, and for someone who was new to the franchise, so full of surprises. Its teleportation traversal system is one of my favourite forms of locomotion in gaming, and like a lot of people, I don't think I'll ever quite forget how menacing those clockwork soldiers are, and how impressive the crack in a slab time travel mechanic is. A Delilah Copperspoon might have a name that's a little too on the nose, and some of the voice acting might be a little stiff, but the inventiveness of the final fight against the Delilah familiars, and the great pleasure I took from watching Vincent D'Onofrio mash the scenery <laughs> with his teeth as the Duke's body double are far more memorable for me. And as for the wailing stuff I remembered from that GameStop ad, it's in there, right along with the Bloodflies and the Dunwall barkeep trying to keep her doors open, the mining town dust, and the blood-splattered asylum tea room which swirl together to create an oil painting texture that makes Dishonored 2, in my opinion, not just a good game, but a great one. Just on that, I wanted to say I thought they did a good job, as I've kind of touched on before. When Emily is taken out of Dunwall, they make the point that she has not been attentive to her entire empire as she should have been. And... um. Megan, I keep wanting to call her Billy Lurk because that's who the character is to me, but Megan Megan Foster, I think it is, um, doesn't sugarcoat it. She she ja she jabs at and makes, you know, pointed comments at you as Emily, despite the fact Emily is clearly trying her best, trying to live up to her mother's legacy, is under a lot of pressure. It's a thankless job, but it's a job that is not being done as well as everyone in that kingdom needs it to be done and they don't shy away from that the 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 entire um 
region of Karnaka is just struggling badly. This uh, last piece from Sage and Onion Knight, I will never get over how much I love that name. (laughs) Somehow it hadn't occurred to me when I started replaying the Dishonored series this year how hauntingly resonant these games about political upheaval in the wake of a pandemic are in 2021. There are many ways in which I love how Dishonored 2 expands on the first game. We explore more of this beautiful world. We get a more nuanced look at the political machinations informing it, particularly in what Emily learns over the course of her story. And we get these compelling little glimpses into lives that have been twisted and destroyed by the mysterious void. I particularly loved how the game design expands on its predecessor, though. Where the first one did a great job of evoking the feel of Thief, Dishonored 2 manages to go further with the scope and experimentation of its levels. A lot of reviewers gushed about the Clockwork Mansion, but my personal favourite, especially on my first playthrough, was Aramis Stilton's Mansion, with its wholly unexpected actioned-up Day of the Tentacle-esque time travel mechanics. With this game and Prey, I felt that Arcane truly perfected the modern immersive sim, both giving me nostalgic pangs of the Looking Glass Iron Storm games I'd loved as a teenager and going way beyond mere homage with imaginative space design and world building. Thank you everyone that uh, contributed on the forum. Uh, Now we move on to the Twitter sphere with your free word reviews. If you wish to submit a free word review, keep an eye out um, on Twitter, on our Twitter account, um, Kane and Rince, um, and uh, look out for the call-out. Um, whenever we're recording, uh, we do a call-out for free word reviews, so look out for those. Um, starting with James. Uh, sure, yeah. Chris says, stabby, stealthy, fun. Get in the damn robot, says. <laughs> Uh, supernatural assassin playground veronica james says daughter surpasses father uh, connor hawks says amazing clockwork mansion john cheatham says karnakian sunset infiltrations porg of prophecy says even better sequel at uh, goodman darkness says peerless level design and toon skatoon says high grade whale punk <laughs> <laughs> Right, um, all that's left is our summaries. Tom, why don't you start us off? Thank you. I really love this game and I would re- recommend it to anybody who has a, a, a like of immersive sims, likes Hitman, likes, you know, Deus Ex and Thief and, and all of those good stuff for it. Uh, or if they haven't got a history of their own with immersive sims, should still jump in don't worry about playing the first game necessarily and maybe consider approaching it if even if you are going to do a low chaos play um through still think of it as a sandbox and an experimentation engine and worry about the no powers run and the you know whatever novel speed run or whatever for later and just drink it in because i think the slower you go the richer the world appears to be and the more details you can tease out. And also, don't be afraid to look at some of the media around this. As I've said a couple of times, virtual photography of this game is is frequently stunning. The talks, there's so many level design talks uh, on YouTube and art design. There's the no clip documentary. There's 
it, it it's as interesting to learn about this game i think as it is to play it and learning about it enriches your your play of it so so i think the the, the word is richness really for me and for that reason it's well worth checking out does it leave me satisfied uh, having enjoyed this story as part of the series not really i think it kind of takes it in an underwhelming direction i'm not massively g'd up to see what comes next in the dishonored series although i haven't played all the way through death of the outsider i do want to go and play that though i've heard good things and bad things but whatever i'll still check it out um but the the real meat on the bones is those standout levels and just the run of just incredible levels that it's worth pushing past the beginning for and just yeah highly recommended to people take your time explore the world get experimental with the powers don't worry too much the the quick load and quick save on on console are fairly um, bearable and just uh, try to have fun i wish the game was a bit funnier a bit sexier a bit more lively and there is something slightly missing at the core for me it doesn't give me a warm feeling like some of the stories and some of the games. I think there's something slightly missing in the middle of it that feels a little bit cold and dour that can be off-putting to people, I think, uh, perhaps. And it does seem like they're going to they're gonna try and go in with a lot of energy to Deathloop and, and address that to some extent. But um, yeah, it's a strong recommendation as long as you know your gaming tastes and you don't tie yourself up in anxiety and fear. And this isn't aimed at James, by the way. This is aimed at me, you know, the kind of anxious player that wants to collect everything. It's like do it with a sense of exploration and fun rather than um, checklist ticking. Uh, I think you get the most out of it. James? Uh, yeah, I think uh, this game definitely benefited for me uh, from my having warmed to Dishonored over the five years after it came out before I played this one, and having replayed Dishonored, um, I think it shares many of the same strengths in terms of level design, in terms of giving you a skill set that you can play with, um, in terms of some of the the characterization and the characterization of the world, but it has a lot of the same weaknesses, um, and I think that's unfortunate that stuff like voice acting stuff like giving you an actual narrative um that that made me want to sort of pull through the game for the narrative alone not just for the stuff that i really liked about it um and particularly in that stealth games are ones that i often replay a lot that i will go back and try to afterwards look at the achievements i missed and see how i can go and do those and these games I never did. The collectibles didn't seem very inspiring to me in terms of paintings and, and blueprints obviously are helpful, but never needed them. But I can't deny that as much as I didn't want to go back and replay them over and over again, I really enjoyed first playthrough. I really enjoyed revisiting it and playing more with the powers. It doesn't reach the top of my stealth game or even immersive sim uh, sort of tier list if you like but there is so much that does hit the highs where it comes to level design and world building and the powers are just uh, very creative that i can't have anything but warm feelings for this i hope we do cover death of the outsider someday i'll not <laughs> not give anything away on my feelings about uh that but as 
uh, a game that I came to hearing a lot of great about, particularly about Clockwork Mansion. It lived up to that. It just didn't quite polish up some of the stuff that I felt was a little flatter in the first game. It kind of still felt that way in the second, unfortunately. But very fond uh, feelings towards it and very happy I got to replay it again. When when evaluating games, um, I kind of think of them uh, with three pillars in mind. Uh, three pillars in mind. Um, one is uh, aesthetics. One is gameplay and, and mechanics, and and the other is story. Um, and I I think about like what games that end up kind of being like favorites of mine, and and games that I end up loving. I think you only need to be masterful at two of those things for me to consider you like an absolute favorite. Yeah. Um, because like, like the story could leave in this game leaves me completely cold. The characters, I don't really care that much about. There are details in the world and, and, and the world building and the lore and all of that stuff. That's really fascinating and interesting. Um, but largely it's kind of a sea of mediocrity for me. Um, but the gameplay is, and the level design and the mechanics are just um, absolutely masterful. Um, and then aesthetically, um, in terms of art direction, Tom has already waxed lyrical about this, but it, I think it's a tour de force as well. And, and those two pillars hold it up. Um, and um, I think it's worth experiencing just to see that stuff. Um, and if you're able, if you're somebody who really cares about storytelling and really cares about character and the absence of that is going to push you away from a game, I don't know if I can recommend Dishonored 2 uh, in good conscience. Um, but if you're able to put that aside and just appreciate um, in isolation, um, like skill sets uh, dedicated to a particular area of design, I think you'll get a huge amount out of Dishonored 2. Mm. I think the hit, the recent Hitman trilogy is more whole for me, and I think when James is talking about other um, immersive sims and stealth games in his pantheon, I know in the background of his head he's thinking Hitman trilogy, Hitman trilogy, <laughs> and I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking the same thing. Like like that trilogy for me is more complete in terms of hitting every axis that I want from from this genre. Um but um it still it still ranks highly for me. I, I absolutely love this game. I'm now going to activate my timepiece so that <laughs> Brian from a different point in time can give us his summary. But joy <laughs> For me, Dishonored 2 uh, was really kind of uh, surprising. Uh, I I obviously really enjoyed it. I have a lot of very good things to say about the um, level design, about character design, and about uh, just kind of the way it feels, the world feel. It reminded me of that way I felt when I first went to Rapture and the first Bioshock, and I think a lot of people kind of chase that feeling, at least I know I do. Um, and Dishonored 2 got there for me in a lot of ways. Um, the, the opening really did turn me off um and i it's one thing to say it, it could be what i my expectations were it could have been i could have been bringing over baggage from the first game um and i could have also just been kind of uh putting my own like expectation of what i thought the game was going to be um but once you kind of get set loose in karnaka you get through the first couple hours um 
I just the first three to four levels, just the way they hit is just after the uh, the prologue level. I mean, it it just is. It's so consistently great to me. And I just always found myself having fun. I was having fun in the location, having fun tracking down the, the, the bad guy, girl that I was focusing on in the area. I was having fun playing with the powers. I was having fun being Emily. And I felt like I, I was given all the tools that I needed to just have a great time playing through this game. I, I would love to see another Dishonored. I can't recommend you play it enough if this is your type of game. Um, but I also will say that it's these types of games aren't always for everybody it's not always that action-oriented experience and and it really rewards you the more time you put into each individual environment and if that's something you feel like you're into absolutely this game's for you um and i i I am i'm looking forward to getting back to playing it my second playthrough i'm looking forward to seeing it again um and i'm really looking forward to see if they do anything with it in the future because dishonored is a series that Based on the first two entries, if there were to be a Dishonored 3 that were to come out, no matter what it was, I would want to be there to see what that team did next. It remains for me, Josh, to thank Brian, James, and Tom for joining me on this recording, and to Editor Jay um, for putting this um, issue together, as well as the many correspondents and free word reviewers uh, for contributing And, of course, you for listening at home. Next time, in issue 464, we trade in the dreadful whale for something a bit more sleek and speedy when we cover Wave Race 64 and Wave Race Blue Storm. Thank you for listening. And low in the month of darkness And low 
his mane destroyed And though he still whispers in silence And though he went into the void